Welcome back to another Beach Cop Detectives interview with the writers, cast, and crew of Terriers. This time out, we're talking to Donald Logue, who played Hank Dalworth. In this interview, we talk about his relationship with the actors, writers, and directors, what made Terriers so special, and a few specific questions about moments from the show, among a lot of other things. So sit back and enjoy this interview with Donald Logue, one of the lead actors on Terriers. I am speaking today with Donald Logue, and if you don't know who that is, you're probably listening to the wrong podcast, but you should stick around anyway because it's going to be a good conversation. Donald, hi. Hello. How are you? I'm doing great today. I like to start these interviews with sort of the same question for everyone, which is six years down the road, what are your thoughts about Terriers? When you get those random questions on an airplane, what do you do for a living? I'm an actor. And they're like, oh, do you mean community theater or, you know, and then it's awkward and kind of funny. But you say, no, you know, I've done film and television or whatever. And they're getting you to define your life and your work. I would always say if friends asked me as an actor, what have you done? I would say watch 13 episodes of Terriers. And that is who I am. And that is what I've done. And if you if you love it, great. If you don't like it at all understandable. That's cool too. But Terriers allowed me, I think more than anything else I've ever done to just to express myself as an actor in the most authentic way that I've ever been able to do so in my career. And and that was the greatest gift of many gifts of Terriers. But that's how much Terriers means to me. It was the apex. It was the, it was just such an unbelievable, I keep coming back to the word gift, but that's what it was to be able to, on a daily basis, have to struggle so much with these scenes that could be, they could go from being silly to absolutely the most kind of poignant, difficult, very emotionally charged kind of places. And we would explore them all every day for those months that we did the show. And so it was it was a thrill. I know that you were an early part of Terriers, but I don't know the whole story. Can you tell me how you came to the show? So Terriers was... You know, I've never been late, and so I I had my initial meeting for it, and of course, there was a little fender bender on the 405 or something like that, and I ended up being late to my first initial meeting for the show with Ted and Sean and Marnie, and so I was scared and nervous as it started because that was unlike me. And so we sat down and they described the show. We made jokes about how the title should probably be something different. (laughs) And they said it was just a title, a kind of like placeholder till we figured something out. And then we got into the character of Hank and I had this really incredible meeting with Ted and Sean and Marnie, as I said, and they, I guess, decided that I could be the guy who could be Hank Dalworth, you know? And then we got into casting the show. Once I was set for the next couple of weeks, everybody who auditioned for every single part in Terriers, I was the person who read with them. So I read with everybody who was reading for Brit or for Katie or for Gretchen or for Maggie or for Mark Gustafson. And and so that's how we found Michael and Kimberly and Jamie and Rockman and Laura. And that was an incredibly valuable experience because I got to workshop it like as if it was a play the weeks before the pilot. And I got, you know, and we you could tell just in the audition process. And I'm an actor. So for every other actor who came in and there were so many fabulous actors, you know, I want everyone to be as comfortable as they can be and do their best work. And I was trying to do mine. And you could just tell when there was just something special or a little bit of magic when you were reading with different people. And, you know, we arrived at this 
unbelievable cast. And I was really glad that I was able to take part in that process. You know, I thought it was critical. Well, it's interesting because I was going to ask you how you got that chemistry that all those relationships felt so real. And now I kind of that makes a lot of sense. Michael Raymond, James and I had gone back. And what happened was some couple of years before that, I was working on a show called Life with Damian Lewis. And it was an interesting episode. And Michael was in it and Rachel Miner. They played this kind of like weird couple that had this museum dedicated to kind of really the dark side of Hollywood, like the Manson family and stuff like that. And so I met Rachel and Michael working on life. And we did one of those all night shoots where your call time's like 5 p.m. and you know you're going to get out of there at 6 a.m. And in the middle of a scene with Michael somewhere around midnight, I just looked at this guy mid-scene and I thought, my God, there's something so electric about this person. There's something so unique and special about him as an actor. And afterwards, we got to talking and I was working at the time on an adaptation of Big Sur, the Jack Kerouac novel that we were making into a movie. And uh, he's a huge Kerouac fan. And we, we talked about the book and we bonded about life and where we were from. And, you know, over the course of that night, this guy kind of felt like we became best friends and fast brothers. And so when Michael came in to read for Terriers, I was so excited I, uh, I gave him a big hug, and I'm sure everybody else who was in the waiting area was just like, oh, great, these guys are buds, you know. But he truly, he and I, and to this day have, we're brothers, you know. We have this incredibly close friendship that transcends any of this kind of acting stuff or our work lives or whatever. We're just, we're kind of bonded for life. And so then we went down to San Diego to find places to live. And they said, you know, well, they'll give you so much money a month to live. And they have a deal at this hotel. And I said, you know, living in this hotel is going to be more expensive. If we just went out, we could rent a house ourselves and save money. And so we rented this house on Mission Beach and decided to live in it together. And the bosses were scared that the two of <laughs> the show were going to be living together. And you're like, no, you don't understand. We're so far past that. We're, we're, we're brothers. And we decided also that while we were living together, because our load were so heavy dialogue wise and et cetera on the show, I mean, we're shooting an episode, you know, in seven days. Sins of the Past, we shot in six days. I've never done that before, an hour of television in six days. And so what we would do is when we were done with work, we would just work on each other's scenes, whether they were scenes that we were in together or with other characters. And so we worked on the show constantly around the clock. You know, we fully dedicated ourselves to it so that when we showed up, we were completely ready you know, we had done our homework. The rest was just to get the scene done. And I think it made a big difference in the show. And everybody got on board with that. Like everybody else in the cast saw that the way we were approaching it and they approached it the same way. So by the time we sh showed up to shoot scenes, people weren't just trying to work out how to memorize lines. We were ready to really dig deep into them and find different layers in the scenes. And I think that that, you know, it didn't make a difference rating wise, but it didn't matter. It made a difference to us. We really felt it was thrilling. We really felt like we were doing kind of theater in a way. Well, and I think that comes through for anyone who's watched Terriers and who loves Terriers, and that's a lot of people, as I've, as I've found. It wasn't enough to get the ratings where they needed to be, but that definitely came through in the final product. When everything you're saying, it makes sense. So much, so many things where I'm like, how do they do this? How do they do this? And that sort of chemistry and family really does come through. And another example of that is Karina playing your sister. 
it's interesting because Karina is my younger sister. She's six years younger than me. And when I was in high school and I was engaged in like the speech team and I did a little bit of like a high school play, uh, we had a friend who lived at our house named John Everly, who was really into theater and really a great actor. And we were down on this Mexican border town called El Centro, California. And so it was odd to find this character who was so into interesting theater, John Everly, and we lived as far away from any of that kind of stuff as you possibly could. And Karina and John became really tight. And it sparked in Karina this real desire to become an actor. And it was something that she wanted to do long before I did. And she has this incredible gift for it. And when it was mentioned to me that Hank would have a sister who would appear a few episodes in, who is a schizophrenic, Sean Ryan said we wanted to think about Karina doing it because Sean had actually worked with Karina before he ever worked with me. He worked with her on the unit and I was so excited. And I'm like, oh my, this is so exciting. And can I call my parents and tell them? <laughs> and they're like, yes, you can call your parents. And so Karina came on board and obviously she's fantastic. One thing that's interesting though, is that, you know, just being best friends or being tight with someone doesn't always mean that the work is always good. It's a strange world. You know, there, sometimes you'll see people with incredible on-camera chemistry who it turns out didn't really like each other or interact that much or the opposite is true. Sometimes some people are incredibly tight and it works, but Karina's such a professional and such an amazing actor. She, you know, she played a character and she took Steph to this amazing place and, and it was just thrilling actor to actor to play against her. I'll tell you where it gets really heavy though, is that there was an episode where she had a real full on complete breakdown you know, where she imagined playing with a, a little girl across the street. And, you know, she had a real kind of psychotic moment. And she realized she had the self-awareness to know that she couldn't just live in my house anymore. We couldn't do it the way we were doing it. And she needed help, which is a, a, was was a huge kind of moment and scene. And that was incredibly painful to shoot. And I remember dropping her off at the treatment center because she's my little sister, because we have this heavy duty Irish family history, because we have a lot of stuff in our closet, as most families do, but maybe particularly our family was unique. Our mother and father were really the only two who'd come from Ireland to live in the United States. And we were always on our own, but we have these massive families back in England and Ireland. And we've all dealt with alcoholism and some suicide and mental illness and different things. When I would drop her off at the hospital, I would just burst into tears. And the director said, you know, that's good. That's a strong choice. It might be too strong. Why don't you try reining it back in on this take? And the next take, I did the same thing. And he's like, I told you, you know, like rein it in. And I said, I can't. And it was overwhelming to me because I'm aware that acting is artifice. It's make-believe. I believe in the power of an improvisational comedy or something. You don't have time to try. I saw this in a recent interview with some famous improv teacher died yesterday, and I was reading quotes about her, and um, she seemed like an amazing person. And she talked about how in improv, you know, people don't have time to work up a process to get to an emotional state. They just have to be able to access it immediately. And this was the first time in my acting career where my emotions would overtake me in the middle of a scene where I couldn't, I didn't have control over them. I didn't have control over the way the scene was unfolding because of 
just how I felt inside. And it was it was also thrilling to kind of to be in that situation. Every time you're in a scene, this goes to something you were just talking about with Karina. Every time you're in a scene with Kimberly Quinn, you have this look on your face, no matter what the scene's about, whether you're joking around or there's this utter heartbreak that tells me everything I need to know about Hank's feelings for Gretchen. How did you get to that place every time? Well, it's interesting because, you know, when various people were coming into audition for Gretchen, there was, and if my memory's a little bit shot, but there was a scene where in the scene, it was written like, are you seeing someone else? Are you seeing someone else? And then she's like, you know, yes, I'm seeing someone else. And we're going to get married when she wants to sell the house. And there was something about reading with Kimberly where when we were doing the scene and, you know, this might sound hokey and weird, but I'm kind of empathic. And um, and, and it's and it happens that way in life where you just get that feeling with someone without words being spoken. You know what's going on. And in that scene with her. It just felt like as we were dancing around the subject, I went straight to you're seeing someone, aren't you? You're going to marry him. And she gave all of that without having to have any dialogue in place. And that's what we were looking for on the show. And I talked to Ted and Sean about it afterwards. And it was like, wow, when you have an actor who can make you feel that way. And when two people are that closely connected and you know them that, you know, it happens a lot in real life or whatever. You just get that. It's the sixth sense comes into play. And the sixth sense, for some reason, always came into play with Kimberly Quinn, you know, and she's incredibly free and emotional about the way she approaches acting. And there was somehow we were just on that. We existed on that plane in the show. And it was it was kind of beautiful to be there. I would also say, you know, that was the case with Laura Allen as well. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because one of the things I noticed in, in watching and rewatching is that Hank and uh, Katie have this relationship where in almost any other show, there'd be some kind of romantic tension or, you know, that kind of thing. And instead, it's very much a, a big brother sister vibe. And I, I thought that that relationship was really interesting. I would say this about the show that I hope that Sean and Ted and I'm sure Michael would affirm and everybody involved with it is you have a show and you have a pilot script and you have these things in place. But once you get the kind of strange alchemy of the cast together, then you really see where things can really go emotionally. They vibrate in a direction that will start to inform where the writing goes, where the plot goes almost in a way. And at first, these guys are just kind of buddies and she's the girlfriend of, of your partner and friend. But as Michael and I are brothers, and this is the way between me and my close male friends in life, is the romantic, the significant others in my friends' lives always become kind of that brotherly sisterly thing where there's love, where it doesn't it's not about is it difficult to cross that line? Because that line is so strong, that wall is so they were already categorized as someone that you love, who's like a sister to you, who you protect. And you're also concerned about the person that you really love, who's your friend. And that was the dynamic between me and and Laura as Katie. And that was that she's so incredible, that scene where she confesses to me that she messed up and she made a mistake, you know, and I counsel her maybe badly to just bury that mistake and never let it out. Because once it's out, I knew that there would be no coming back from where it would go. And um, Laura did something, too, which is interesting is she had some I'm not sure if this was. And look, this was the greatest experience with a group of writers 
that any actor could possibly have. They were so fantastic. And they had written some line for her where Britt establishes that he met her because he had broken into her place and saw her picture on the right. Right. So he tells her that and her response is kind of strange. It's like she tells him to come back through the window in 10 minutes with someone with lesser gifts. It could come off as just like a weird, she's kind of a weird fetishist who's into rape fantasies or something strange. But there was something about the way that Laura did it that just opened 15 doors into her like Jungian subconscious that the writers got so excited to explore. She, through the force of her performance, opened up a new line of inquiry into who she was as a human being because she wasn't just the token, you know, veterinarian girlfriend. She was a full-fledged human being with all with all of the flaws that come contained, you know, within. And that was a kind of a door that Laura opened through her through her acting. And so that's kind of how the show started to unfold. We felt like we were caught in a whirlpool when we started the show and we started circling it and getting a sense of where it was going and then either by being proactive on our sides that meaning the writers and the actors or then there was this other kind of weird force of energy that just took hold and pulled us into this kind of sucking whirlpool vortex. And it just got more and more thrilling as time went on. You've in your career played very memorable sort of good guys and bad guys. Uh, where do you think Hank falls on that spectrum? I mean, what I love about Hank is that he falls. He's a really I think he's a I tried to pull him. I said, what if I got to play a character and I could make him as close to who I think I am as humanly possible? how I dress. It was easy. It was so interesting because I grew up in El Centro and 120 miles away is Ocean Beach. And and um, a lot of my friends from the desert had moved to San Diego. And a couple of my best friends from high school were living in Ocean Beach when we shot Terriers. And I got to see them, uh, particularly this guy named Troy Nide, and who's a surfer and lives in the town. And so what I loved about Hank was you know, as opposed to really challenge, you know, there was challenges to things like copper, which was thrilling as well. But I was playing this Irish general coming back from the Civil War or there, you know, there's always some level of artifice you have to overcome. There's a dialect. There's different things that you have to learn. But with Hank, I could just I could just be me and show up to work. And all I had to worry about was how I was going to try and take the emotions and work them into the dialogue that was given. Do you have a uh, favorite episode or a favorite moment from the series? Um, I, I probably have too many, <laughs> probably have too many to, to count or to share. Um, but I do remember that when Tim, my near was down there for sins of the past, um, there it's all compartmentalized because, you know, that scene with Laura in the diner, um, any one of a hundred scenes with, with Michael Raymond James, I particularly loved working with Rockman Dunbar. There was something just so explosively just so there's he's he's got so much strength. We would say as an actor, he just has a lot of weight in his heels. You know what I mean? Yeah, he really is just he's a he's a rock to play off of. And he he and I I think I did some of the best work I've ever done in my life with Rockman, you know, and um and I, I, I think in Sins of the Past, we had some some really powerful scenes in the interrogation room. But I can't tell you I there, there were so many moments that that go through my mind. There was a moment when 
in that episode when we're bringing in a woman who's trying to help identify the rapist from the past. And she was a local actress and I can't remember her name and I apologize. And we did take after take after take. And it's not going the, you know, the kind of like the lineup's not going the way that Hank wants it to go. But she doesn't know. But I watched this woman after like 15 takes still in that place and still in that level of she was just in this deeply heavy emotional place. And I was just thinking to myself, like, wow, this is beautiful, like watching this artist do her thing. And there were so many of those uh, there's so many of those moments in Terriers that they just they kind of overwhelm. Um, there was a moment that, you know, what I do love about Terriers, too, was it was funny, but we always kind of felt like it was only funny in the sense that if it made us laugh naturally, written to be like a, you know, a sitcom kind of line. But there was one episode where we had to show up and find this guy. We were looking for a ring. He's at the door and we open up the door and we ask him his name and he goes, uh, um, that's my name. Don't wear it out. And it was just something so absurd about it that just, you know, Michael and myself just busted up and could not control. And it was it's so fun when you're in the midst of something where those responses are just so natural and not just, you know, fake acty chuckle stuff. Um, we tried to excise everything that felt forced or fake from everything we were doing every day in every scene. You know, and I think when people respond to the chemistry or sometimes talk about the performances, I'm hoping in a weird way, whether they know it or not, that's kind of what they're referring to. Well, yeah, Ted and I, when I talked to him, he mentioned the joke, which is in the finale that the, he's like, there's an APB out on you. And Hank just says, did you say there's a PB and J out on me? And that line would not work without you guys being amused by it. Right. Those little non-joke jokes that you tell with your friends, that sense of genuine really comes through. Right. When you're in the deep, deep, deep stuff with another human being and your only kind of psychological defense tactic sometimes is to do something like that. It works that way. That's why, you know, and I have friends who are in the military and we talk a lot about stuff like that. Like I ask them, I'm just so curious about what what's it like in heavy situations. And they mention that a lot where that kind of absurdity or and or humor is the kind of thing that you'll find a lot when things are tightest and toughest because you know, it's a it's a coping mechanism. And that's the way that's the way we tried to play it. I'm not trying to pretend that, you know, being on a set or anything is anything like that. But those are the worlds that we're trying to reimagine and investigate and bring to life. And so uh, I agree with you. And I remember that. I remember that so well. You know, it was it was just such an interesting time. I I um I was going through this kind of particularly uh, weird situation where I broke my shoulder on episode three. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so, so at the end of episode two, we have a fight scene with that massive guy who's six ten, Matthew Willig. Yeah. <laughs> Matthew, man, he's such a great guy and he's such a beautiful guy. And he, but he threw me and he threw me like a chihuahua. <laughs> we were going to go through a wall, but to save the wall, we had these stands set up that I would catch before. But he, I mean, he threw me like I would throw a Coke can. When I caught it, I could hear something snap in my shoulder and he was like, Oh shit. Man, I heard that, dude. Are you okay? And I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, and I just wanted to try and ride out the weekend, but I, I knew I was kind of shot. And then the Monday we showed up for episode three with the new director, and we had to do this chase scene through the alley where Lindus gets away from us. 
And I said, dude, I'm not that guy. You know, I, I felt embarrassed. I was like, you can ask anyone I've worked with in the last 20 years. Like, I'll do anything. I'll jump off of anything. I'll, I'll go for anything. But my arm doesn't work. And he didn't know me that well. And he was like, we just got to try, mate. And so something went down where I fell and I and my shoulder because my labor had toured on Friday night, the bone broke on the Monday morning. And so we were down in San Diego and, and Sean, all the bosses were up in L.A. So they were far away. They didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what was going on at the time with me. So I just had to kind of like soldier through it, the fight scenes and the different stuff, which and I'm very I love that episode. I think that's where the. The kind of temperature changed on Terriers, that dramatic Lindis escape episode. And so, you know, we had to make a decision and we just didn't know. I, you know, I was scared shitless. I didn't know what to do because, you know, there's a couple of hundred people that depend upon you showing up to work. You can't shut stuff down. So we talked about various things about him getting shot or whatever. But as it turns out, it was just like, you know what, suck it up and get through this year and then get surgery when you're done. But it added this element of, you know, there was definitely an element of chronic pain or some weird, you know, I had a broken shoulder. So I, I was like, you know, let's do this thing. Let's really absorb this and feel this and try and work it into into the performance. And I think it I wouldn't suggest it to anyone else, ever, <laughs> but it definitely helped me in this strange way ring a, a different level of performance out of me in Terriers than I'd, than I'd come up with before. But Michael was there for me. You know, this poor guy, he helped me put my T-shirt on in the morning. Like it was like, uh, like I said, we're brothers. But there's there's so many moments. And uh, one of the most important things, Randy, to talk about in in Terriers is, and I, and I really need to get this across, is Sean, Ted, Leslie, Headland. Worley, Nick Griffin, Ted's brother, Angela Kang, Jed Seidel, Fief Sutton, Tim Minear, who was kind of like the gen like the guy that was losing sleep for weeks at a time to make sure it really went those many layers in the onion deeper, right? And Kelly Wheeler. Like to have that group of writers that passionate and that engaged was so fantastic. And they deserve all the credit in the world. Now we were lucky, of course, to work with one thing that's friggin' amazing about this new golden age of television is they talk about, and I experienced it on Gotham. I got to experience it on Vikings and Sons of Anarchy and Law and Order SVU and all these different shows I've been working on since is that every week you get a different director to work with. Adam Arkin, I've always loved as an actor and a director. And as a director, I think he's particularly effective because he comes from it from the such a deep acting perspective. When Ted got to direct, it was it was thrilling because Nick would be there and we'd be working on stuff. And Craig Brewer, who directed the pilot, who's a fantastic human being, John Dahl, my old friend who I wrote a pilot with for FX years ago, uh, Guy Furland, who I've been who I've worked with since on a, on Sons of Anarchy in Gotham, Tucker Gates, who's a brilliant who did you know he just he did some great episodes of Carnival and different shows. Billy Gearhart, one of the nicest and most talented human beings of all time. My buddy Clark Johnson. Uh, we had Ryan Johnson, who's now going on to direct Star Wars, right? Michael Offer from Australia, who I mentioned, who's a brilliant director. Michael Zinberg. So we had, we were just gifted on all sides of the camera. And we did this in San Diego with a mostly San Diego based crew. And I'll tell you, like, I, I don't want to try and 
talk hyperbolically about how hard production is. But on a crew, production is incredibly hard. The people that have to show up at 5 a.m. on Monday morning, and there's a lot of sometimes 17, 18, 19-hour days. People have read about stuff like that. People getting into accidents after driving home from a 19-hour day on set and stuff. The crew is working constantly. And we had the most amazing crew. And I remember when we were doing certain things and it might be four or five o'clock in the morning and people are fried, it was the crew that was rallying us to do the work that we were doing. And you don't find that all the time. You know, sometimes for for both sides of it, it's a job and you show up and you just want to get home. But I think we all recognized that we were doing something that we all cared about. And we had the most amazing crew. The captain, you know, the captain of the of the crew was um, I, I'm, was Curtis Curtis Weir, who was the the DP. He gave it the look. He was there for every second of every shot. I love Curtis as a human being, and you know Curtis Curtis had this kind of thing where he had to do something. He had a sinus issue or something. There was some weird thing where every year he had to do some procedure. I don't mean to talk too much about. He was sick. I can't remember. He was he came down with something. And so the day that my sister had her breakdown scene where she was running across the street and going, I remember showing up to set, even though I wasn't working and Curtis was there. And I said, what are you doing? Aren't you supposed to be in L.A.? And he said, I couldn't leave and not be here for your sister. And I mean, that's it may make you want to cry. You know, that was Curtis. And so um, I just, uh, you know, there's part of me that wanted to put Terriers kind of in a box and just. And just not even look at it because sometimes it was it was it was it's difficult to it's difficult to think about not being with those people and not doing what we were doing. But, you know, if if you had a 10 hour podcast for the fans of Terriers out there, I could tell a zillion stories, but I could never quite get in everybody's name who needs mention about how awesome they were. Every episode that I've done, I've gone through all the credits and that kind of thing. And you, you know it deeper than I do. I'm using IMDb and that kind of thing. But I have been stunned as someone who thought he, I thought I knew the show really well. But every time I go through and look at the episode, I'm like, look, at, I go look at the director and see what else he's directed. I look at the writers, what else they've done. I look at the everyone from the smallest extra actor. Like every every bit of detail is in there. And you, you can definitely feel all the love that went into this, all the work that went into it. I think that really comes through. And what's beautiful was that Ted and Sean – you know, got together and Marnie got together a writing team and Tim, of course, that look what Leslie's done since then. And Angela went on to like, you know, um, The Walking Dead and that John Worley was a young guy getting a start. And it was they really believed in young playwrights and they they kind of gave them the break and they trusted them. And it, I, I think The Shield did the same thing. And bam, there's Sean again with Kurt Sutter and stuff. And so many of the writers from The Shield, it created this army of new, really talented showrunners who were confident that they could take something as as complicated as these serialized storytelling mechanisms seem to be. And they they gave them their start. They believed in them. And now they're all established and running in fantastic careers on their own. And it's great to have been part of that to see them coming up. Well, in 
Seppenwall and Zoller Seitz's new book, they uh, they talk about Freaks and Geeks and how it was a one-season show, but if you look at all the people that were in it, it just spawned this huge array of talent that are now in all these big things. And I feel like I'll always be heartbroken that Terriers didn't get a season two and three and that kind of thing. But if you look at that one, it was a one perfect season that anyone could pick up and watch, I think, for decades down the road. And it's put so many people out into the world creatively to do more things. So its legacy is definitely safe, I think. That's great. Yeah. And that's, I, I feel that way. I feel that it's, you know, I mean, we always talked about coming back, which would have been really ex- exciting. And we may do a movie, we may do something like that. There is this small element of fear in me that we had at that time, at that space, in that place, we were trying to capture a little bit of, you know, lightning in a bottle. And I, I would, there's part of me that would, that would hate to let people down with something, anything less than the level of creativity that was being brought to the table at that time, you know, in San Diego. But yes, like I can't watch myself do stuff. I hate, I'm one of those people. I hate it, but I can watch Terriers. I can watch it over and over again. And part of, part of it is because I just, I'm just so in love with all the people that populate the world of Terriers, you know? Yeah. Do you think that Hank took Brett to jail or to Mexico? Oh, he totally took him to jail. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I think too. <laughs> I mean, it was like it's so it's so beautiful like to think that it could be a possibility. What I, here's another insider tip on terriers that I loved all the time was and I and, and I'm trying to look back all these years back and remember, but I can't remember there's the episode of the kid who didn't know who he was. Missing persons. Yeah, missing persons and so Michael's on the boardwalk asking him what the capital of California is. And he said, Sacramento. And he said, wrong, El Centro. (laughs) Like I'm from El Centro, California, population 35,000. It's the highest unemployment rate in the United States for the last 30 something years. It's a pretty, you know, it's just down on the Mexican border with Mexicali. And and so I managed to work in all these El Centro at the the last episode when we're going to go do the hit. Like I'm wearing this hat from Camacho's, which was my favorite restaurant in the world is this Mexican restaurant outside of El Centro, literally like tumbleweeds blowing by down in the desert. And that we got to bring all these elements of our our hometown and our home life into it. And so we we didn't change dialogue. The writing was beautiful. But when I can talk to him about like, hey, let's go to let's go to Mexico, let's go down to San Felipe and, you know, and just live out our lives. And I think San Felipe is this town two hours south of Mexicali on the Sea of Cortez that me and my family have been going to since the mid 70s. And so, like I said, like we could make every personalize everything and make everything real to you. But me being Donal and Donal knowing Hank, I just know it's not a reality to live in San Felipe for the rest of your lives. That, that it would come to an end, that the reality was that he would have to go do what he had to do and face his punishment. And then he would get out and we would resume from there, you know. And so I love the kind of that existential moment at the stoplight. And wouldn't it be beautiful if we could all take that left, you know, but you can't in life. And we're all faced with a lot of these things where we wish things had gone differently or things had shaken out a different way. But reality kind of just wakes you up and yeah, so I, t- I took him to jail, you know, unfortunately. And so um, because he's pragmatic in certain ways, Hank, I always thought, and pretty smart. And I, I just uh, I get a emotional. I-, I I hadn't watched that scene until recently. Um, I say I watch Terriers a lot. I'll watch individual episodes, but I hadn't watched the last scene in Terriers between me and Michael until last year was the first time that I saw it. 
I I rewatched them again a couple nights ago, just the last two, and I forget, despite the fact that I've seen them at least a dozen times each, I, I forget how heartbreaking it is every time there's there's moments, there's when the city councilman betrays them, or when we see Steph again, and there's all these moments that are just so profound and heartbreaking, and I, I love it so much. What, are, there, are there any moments in the show that struck you in a way that you would have particular questions about that you would want from inside knowledge? What was going on? I have a question. I've asked a couple of the writers, and they both they they haven't really had, had known. And I feel like you might have an answer. Um, in the episode "Change Partners," where Hank goes to Miriam, the woman who he is, you know, who he's cuckold her her husband, um, and he tells her what has happened, what happened with her husband, gives her the full truth. And I've always wondered. We've I've been discussing with my friends whether or not that was a a selfish moment for Hank, where he told her the truth despite the fact that it might have been kinder to lie to her, or if he was trying to do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah, we talked about that a lot, and we thought that it was um, that he was, tr- you know, that he was trying to do the right. He was trying to do the right thing, and that sometimes in life, like when we try and kind of come up with an artificial answer for someone to make them feel better about a situation, is ultimately more harmful and down the line causes more disaster and confusion than. Then is good. We were always bouncing between those two sides of the line because, you know, in the scene with Laura, where I tell her to lie to to Brit because I know that he cannot handle it. When is there truth with a capital T? And when is, you know, there are different types of truths, you know, and it was interesting in that because I had my own relationship with her and I had my own relationship with him that was that was so bizarre. There was something in a take. My friend, this guy named Gilles Marini, who's one of my best friends, there was a take where Sean in that, in that episode, he threw pictures at me and it hit me in the head and it was unscripted. And I felt like Hank, in the way he felt about who this guy was morally, would have just snapped and just gone after him. But it wasn't in the script to do so. And I think they kept that in the final cut. And my friend, it was the one part of Terriers where my friend Jill was like, I watched that and I knew that you'd be like, no way. If that guy throws shit at me, I would get up and I would... But I remember standing at the doorway talking to her and and just thinking that it's just there's nothing else to do. There's no, there was a lot of other kind of I can't remember specifically, but there was like this this kind of other bit of dialogue that they had that they were unsure about because it kind of just danced around. And I thought, man, it, it just was better to go straight for it. And then just it changes the temperature immediately. And her reaction is so beautiful, like. That was a that was a pretty thrilling episode. That was Guy's episode, and um, I thought that that was such a, a fantastic kind of episode. It was such a homage to Vertigo and its own and its own kind of beast in a different way. So, but uh, it was fun to try and to go back and remember that. Along similar lines, uh, Hank takes an instant dislike to Lindis, and I wondered if you thought was that that he was that he was rich and kind of arrogant, or does he recall sort of the, the case that the rich guy who Hank thinks got away with it that we'll find about in Sins of the Past? Where do you think that, that animus comes from? It was interesting, and I'm not a real... I'm a fan of cinema, and I might not be articulating myself as well as I should, but there was someone was talking to Robert Town about Chinatown, and he wanted to write this movie about the conspiracy of bringing water to Los Angeles and big development and things like that. And ultimately, he said, I wrote a script about how the rich get away with murder. And it's just the smugness. Lindis, to me, was John Houston in Chinatown, you know? 
he was just he represented all of those things of they these guys who do these things and just feel like there are no consequences or there are no repercussions. And it was interesting because I remember filming in some mansion at one time for some job or another, and it was the mansion of a guy who had basically had to go to do some time in federal prison, though very few people did, re- relating somehow to the the housing market crash of 2008 or whatever, where you know you just heard about these stories of people who were like taking billions on one side and then when the things crashed they took billions on the other side and then they could put property in other people's names and so they were untouched and they could go do 14 months somewhere and then come back and it was like all of that was adding up inside of me you know and unfortunately poor Lindis was for me and Michael he represented that person and that's where that level of anger. I think in the particularly in the pilot, though, it was that I had a friend who was so vulnerable, you know, and for him to die, for my friend's daughter to come to me, knowing all of the kind of difficulties that whoever killed him was not going to get away with it. I just want to I want to say again, thank you for, for doing this interview. Thank you for Terriers, which I absolutely love. It is I watch a lot of TV. I have a regular TV podcast and I have been literally talking about Terriers, I think, every week of my life since it was it's been on. I really deeply love this show and I'm so glad to get a chance to talk to you and to share my love with everybody. Thank you, Randy. And, I, you know, and I have to say one last thing is is just I've always had this kind of really cool relationship with uh, John Langraff, who runs FX, who, as I mentioned before, we had a show of myself and um, John Dahl and his brother wrote a pilot for this show that didn't go. This was before Terriers. So we were looking for this opportunity to work together and Terriers was it. And despite the name and whatever, all these different elements, like John always really wanted to keep the show on the air. And You know, there were people who were upset about Terriers going away, but it was a great act of kindness on FX's part to, you know, they aired the full season. And then because of that, Netflix had a chance to pick it up. And you'll never meet a brighter or more supportive kind of network executive than John Langraff. And so I'm just so glad that we got to have what we had and it still gets to exist for others to share in. Yeah. Landgraf has always seemed like one of the smartest people in TV and, and I, I love FX and everything they do. And he always made his love clear for Terriers. And oh my God, he's erudite in this way that you, it's just hard to describe to people, but he's also just, he's a caring, he's just a caring human being. He's a really, just a really great guy. And, um, and so, uh, you know, and I'm, I think that I hope that he feels too, that with the love and kind of, you know, Terriers kind of grew since its cancellation in this way. And I know that I hope he takes some kind of like satisfaction in that, 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 you know, he backed this horse and there was kind of a reason, you know, but ultimately it's a business. And if you don't have that kind of sustainable viewership, you know, they can't keep making it, but we thank them for making the season. Well, I would I would love to take the left turn into the universe where Terrace has six seasons, but I will uh, happily keep driving on the right where we got one perfect season. So, uh, thank thank you again for doing this. Yeah, you're welcome. Have a great day, Randy. Okay. Thanks. Have a good day. Beach Cop Detectives is an independently run podcast co-produced by Randy Lander and Grant Davis from the TV Dudes and part of the Permanent Record Network. Music for this series includes the surf music tracks Happy and Whimsical by Paul Tyann. 
To hear more of his work, go to soundcloud.com slash Artwork for the show is by Nate Bliss. You can find him at nateblis-art.tumblr.com. You can like us on Facebook at Beach Cop Detectives and on Twitter at Beach Cop Podcast. You can hear weekly TV commentary by Randy and Grant at thetvdudes.com. Thanks for listening.